on the, the morning of April 25, Australian and New Zealand soldiers, together with French and British and Indian and a whole lot of different allied nations, on the morning of April 25, the Anzacs landed at what is now known as Anzac Cove. Most of us know the story, but we might not know some of these little incidentals about that first Anzac day. 100 years today, by the way. Isn't it amazing? As we sit in this church right now, 100 years ago to the second, to the second, to the minute, as we sit here, our brothers, the Anzacs, were landing in Turkey. By the end of the day, two Anzac divisions were ashore. 4,000 men lay dead. 2,000 on the Turkish side, 2,000 on the Allied British side. And by the end of that first day, 860 Australians, they estimate, because they can only estimate, had fallen in battle and paid the ultimate price with their lives. And what a lot of people don't know, now I have a great love of history, and so I like to dig into these stories. And to be honest, I've been studying and reading the Anzac story for a couple of, almost three decades now. And so I'm very interested in history. I'm really interested in Australian history. And by nightfall, and this is what a lot of people don't know, the Australian divisional commanders were asking the British High Command and the British Navy for evacuation. That's how bad it had got. I was in PNG just a a few years ago now, and I was staying at the headquarters of the church up there in Ley, and right next to the headquarters was a cemetery. And I decided to walk across to that cemetery. Do you know it was an Australian, New Zealand, Anzac war cemetery? And when I got across there, they had some guards guarding the cemetery. It was beautifully manicured and there were these little white tombstones almost as far as you can see, over 3,000 Australians, New Zealanders, Indians and Americans buried in that cemetery, mostly Australians and New Zealanders. And so I thought I'd go for a walk through the cemetery. I had been walking in the cemetery for no more than five or ten minutes and I'm reading the names of these men. And I'm reading their ages, most of them 18, 19, 20, and 21. And I walk there for five or ten minutes, and the tears start to come out of my eyes. And it was a very moving, moving time for me. And I asked the question as I walked through that grave. At cemetery, And I ask you the question today, what was it that would cause a soldier to give his life for their country? And so I went to the Bible and I think I got the answer. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 32. You give me five minutes here and you'll wonder where I'm going, but you'll see where it ends up. Exodus 32 verse 1. I think in this Bible story we find the answer and you, you, you will wonder where we're going. Hold with me, you'll see. Verse 1. Israel's going through the desert. They've been rescued by Moses and God from the land of Egypt from 400 years slavery. They're going through the desert. They're on the way to the promised land. This is a story that's some 4,000 years old. It's a true story. It's one of the great exoduses of mankind, one of the great people movements that the world has ever seen where three, maybe four million people, all slaves, set free by God, walk through a desert to the promised land. And Moses goes up onto the hill 
onto the mountain, Sinai, to get the Ten Commandments from God. And Moses is up there and he's talking with God. What an experience Moses must have had. What a, what, what, what a privilege for Moses to go and talk with God and get the Ten Commandments, which were written by the hand of God off him to take to Israel and not just to Israel, to the world. And so this is a very somber, holy time in the history of Israel. And they are having the most incredible experience. If you know the story, remember the Egyptians had chased them through the Red Sea. God had destroyed the Egyptian army. It's an amazing story. If you don't know it, read the book of Exodus, second book in the Bible. They're walking through the desert. During the day, God is, and I often say this, he's giving them air conditioning. Can you believe it? They have a cloud over their head, shielding them from the sun, a soft, gentle, cool breeze. Oh, what a, this is the first air conditioning anyone had ever had. Given by God to the Israelites as they walk to the promised land. And God will look after you. It might even give you air conditioning on your way to the promised land as you face trials and challenges as well. At night, you know, I remember we were in Las Vegas a few years back with Andrew actually. In the winter. Now, Las Vegas is up high and it's in the what? Desert. It's in the desert. So you'd think it'd be hot, wouldn't you? <laughs> Where's Hannah and Danae? They in here somewhere? They better be somewhere around here. Oh, they're up here. You remember when we were staying at that hotel in Las Vegas out on the, cause I wouldn't stay on the strip. I always go, well, I've only been there a few times. In fact, last time we went there, Andrew wanted to go. You remember Andrew? And I, I drove past, oh, there's something I don't like about Las Vegas. We kind of get a creepy feel there. But we're staying in Las Vegas, you remember girls? And we get up in the morning to, to go to these hot pools. The, the, the pools we were swimming in were hot. Do you remember Hannah? Don't know. Beautiful. But we'd be in bare feet and we'd have to go across the, it's so cold that by the time you got to the hot pool, your feet are just aching. And then you put them in the hot pool and you get kind of, the, oh, it's not a real pleasant experience actually. <laughs> but the desert can be cold. Did you know that? Freezing cold. And this desert that God was sending them through to the promised land was cold. But what did God put in the sky? Oh, hallelujah. He put a fire in the sky. So you never went and warmed your, your hands by the fire You'd uh, like this. You'd warm your hands by the fire like this. These people had the presence of God. And you have the presence of God too. You are on the way to the promised land and you have the presence of God too. He keeps you cool in the conflict. He warms you with his presence in the cold, antichrist world that you're asked to live in. We are like Israel. We are through the desert. We are on our way to the promised land. And God is blessing us just as surely as he's blessing them. And we ought to thank him. We ought to count our blessings every day that God is walking through this desert with us. Amen? Amen. Look what happens. When the people... Now remember, the fire's in the sky at night. The cloud is over the sun during the day. When the people, they've just come through the Red Sea. They're seeing all the miracles and power of God. Never, ever, ever have a people seen God like this. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain... They gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron, weak Aaron, you want to pray that you don't have leaders in the church like this. 
Weak Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And often, just like the Israelites, we get impatient waiting for God. I think it's Psalm 20 or 24 says, wait on the Lord. Again, I say wait. Never get impatient with God. Wait on the Lord. You be patient. He will come. As my grandmother used to say, if he doesn't open the door, don't try to walk through it. You know, I did try to walk through a door once. Have a look at my nose. (laughs) It wasn't so long ago. I was up my mum and dad's place. They got one of these awful security doors. You know that you can't see that the security's there? And went outside during the day, da-da-da, did whatever I was doing, and walked straight into the door. (laughs) Don't try and walk through the door if it's not open. Wait. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, Oh, Israel, oh, what an offence to God this must have been. These are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. These are these people are misbehaving bad. Moses' congregation, Moses' church is in disarray while he's away. And Aaron saw... Weak Aaron, how excited the people were. By the way, don't rely on your pastors, don't rely on your presidents, don't rely on any of your spiritual leaders for your own salvation. Work it out for yourself. There are too many people in Christianity following pastors. Don't come to New Hope and follow Lloyd Grolleman. If you leave Liz, is going to tell you, follow me too far, you're going to get lost. Amen? You come to this church, you follow Jesus Christ. And you take your truths from the scripture, from the Bible. And these people, Aaron saw how excited the people were. What an awful, weak pastor. So he built an altar in front of the calf and he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. What a joke. This is a mixing of the pagan with the holy. The golden calf and an altar of the Lord. What a joke. Worship will be an area of conflict at the end of time. You can bet on that. You can bet on that. Because this whole, this whole battle, this whole war is over worship. Who will you worship, God or darkness? Verse 6, the people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. These are offerings that God had asked to be sacrificed to him. And after this, they celebrated with feasting, drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. This is the calf god, and he was the bull god, the Egyptian god, Apis. He was one of the most important gods in Egypt. These people who had been brought out of Egypt by God, who had seen his power, they are worshipping the gods that our God defeated. Can you believe it? And too often we're doing that. We're worshipping the gods of the world when we've got the true God. Amen? Amen. This bull god, I don't know how much you know about him, he was a fertility god in Egypt. And the worship of him was always surrounded by gross immorality. It was really just a great big pagan, I'm sorry for using the word, but orgy. And here are the Israelites, the people of God, under the cloud that's still in the sky, covered by him from the burning sun. And here they are worshipping this God and involved in a mass orgy. Verse 7, the Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Listen to what God says. And don't tell me God can't be offended. Your people, not God's people now, your people, Moses, 
whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves, how quickly they have turned away from the way I've commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf, and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God is hurt. And our sin hurts God. I don't think we think about that a lot. And I left God for 13, 14 years and participated in awful sin and hurt him. But he went after me anyway because he loves me. And you know, his hurt is there and it's real and it's tangible, but his love for you is greater. Do you hear that? He loves you even more than the hurt. And I know how I respond when I get hurt. I want to lash out at the person who hurt me and hurt them too so they can feel the hurt that I'm experiencing. But God doesn't work like that. He's hurt. But he's teaching the world a lesson here. And his love is greater than his hurt. Verse 9, Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Look what happens. Now let me alone. Remember, God is teaching a lesson here. Now let me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I'll destroy them. Then I'll make you, Moses, into a great nation. God is angry. Sin upsets him. I know what it's like to have God angry with me because I've experienced it. Remember, not so long ago, God got annoyed at me about something. Couldn't sleep. You remember this, Liska? Weighed down with guilt. I never shared with Liska exactly what was going on, but you saw it. Andrew saw this from afar. Finances went kaput. My personal relationships were deteriorating and the thing that hurt the most was I was abandoned by the presence of God. You step away from God, I'm going to tell you today it's going to hurt and it's going to hurt deep and it's going to hurt bad. When they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing. He burned with anger. He threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they made and burned it. Then he ground it into powder, threw it into the water and forced them to drink it. He's got a bit of a temper, hasn't he? Sin in the camp. And I like what Moses did with it. And it's a lesson, an object lesson to us. The sin in the camp, he got rid of it, he made them drink it. He burned the stuff down, ground it into powder, put it in the water and said, drink it. You're never going to build a golden calf out of that again. All the gold gone. Ended up in the latrine where it really belonged. And if you've got sin in your life, I'm encouraging you today, get rid of it. I'm no perfectionist. I know I'm saved by faith and the grace and the blood of Christ. Hallelujah. But if you've got sin in your life, get rid of it. And this is what I've been leading up to. And this is where I bring it back to the Anzacs and I conclude. The next day, verse 30, Moses said to the people, you've committed a terrible sin. This is Anzacs. But I'll go back up to the Lord on the mountain. Perhaps I'll be able to obtain forgiveness for you. So Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They have made gods of gold for themselves. But now, Lord, you can see him pleading with God, his friend. If you will only forgive their sin. But here's the Anzac part. But if not, erase my name from the record you have written. I believe the Anzacs at Gallipoli, the Anzacs on the Somme, 
The Anzacs in Papua New Guinea did a Moses. What I mean? Well, many of our soldiers who gave their lives in different campaigns all over the world, they did a Moses. And what I mean by that is they were prepared to give their lives selflessly. When Moses went up onto the mountain, you've got to understand what he's saying. God, forgive them. But if you must destroy them, then I love them so much, destroy me too. It's this love, follow me here, called agape. Agape is unconditional, selfless love. It's loving with an expectation of no return. And when those soldiers got up out of the trench and they charged at Flanders, at the Somme, at Gallipoli, the the enemy soldiers, now it's a war, it's not a perfect example of agape, but it's agape at work. They did it because of their selfless love for Australia. There was no return. Because they were going to what? They're going to die. It's not perfect love. It's, It's in the middle of a war. It's a very dark scenario. But these men were giving you a little example of agape love. It's selfless, unconditional love. When Moses stands up there on the mountain, he says, Lord, if you cannot forgive these people who are my brothers and sisters, my church, who you've given me to look after, know how we need pastors who love their church like that. If they cannot, if you cannot forgive them, then take me out too. That's agape, agape love. War is a depraved evil thing. In most cases, it's senseless and unjustified. In my lifetime, I have not seen a justified war. I've not seen a war that we should have fought. You could argue World War II with the Japanese Imperial Army coming down toward Australia. You can argue that with Hitler rising up and the genocide of the Jews and everybody else who, he, who opposed him. You can argue that that, that 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 was a justified war and perhaps it was. Perhaps the world had no choice. But war is a depraved thing. But even in the wickedness and the darkness of war, agape love is present. And when I look at those soldiers who gave their lives for Australia... Many of them, maybe not even Christians, didn't know Jesus. There's a tragedy. But when I look at them, I see the agape love, the unconditional love that God has planted in all of us. Amen? They did it because they loved their country. And they expected nothing in return, and they got nothing in return except for death. And I'm walking through that memorial the other day, and I'm thinking, this is all they got. This is their only reward. Their only reward is to get their name written in brass on a wall. And no one reads their name because there's 108,000 or whatever. There's too many of them. I walked to the tomb of the unknown soldier. And what reward did he get? I was thinking, well, I want to be in that tomb. Would I want to be... No! No, we don't even know who his name is. His reward is to lie in that tomb, people watching him. That was his reward, but he gave it and he did it because of the agape that God plants in all of us. It was selfless, selfless love in a dark, dark environment. And right through war, you get examples of this agape. Carl Carpenter, Helmut Promise, American soldier, November 2010, threw himself on a grenade to save the lives of his fellows, of his mates. And there's story after story after story of this sort of agape love in the darkness of war. What did he get in return? 
He lost his right eye. He lost all his teeth. He suffered a shattered jaw. He broke his arm in multiple places and has since gone under 30 surgeries. Blessed he didn't die. He got a medal of honour in return. A tin medal. But he didn't do it for the medal. He did it because of his agape love for his mates. And this is where it comes home. If this agape love is in all of us, if we have the potential to it, and we see it in our soldiers, as I said, many of them not following Jesus, but we still see this agape love coming forward. If this agape love, this unconditional love, is potentially in all of us, then as a church we need to grow it. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to come inside to grow it. Do you know what this community here needs from us? Agape love. It's unconditional love. It's, hey, we'll love the community whether or not you love us back. Amen? It pains me. It causes me anxiety, sometimes even anger, when I see as we fight these senseless wars over in the Middle East, Christian leaders getting up and railing against Islam. What use is that nonsense? God doesn't call us to hate our brothers and sisters in Islam. What does he call us to do? Agape them. What's going to bring people to Christ is agape, unconditional love. Some of the brightest, the mightiest, the most wonderful baptisms I've had are people giving their hearts to Jesus, who are people, they are people who have started off as my enemies. And only God can give you agape love. Only God can grow it. Until it becomes so powerful a force in your life that everywhere you go, people are attracted to you through to who? To Jesus Christ. It's a, you, you've got a gap I love. If it's shining in you, people can see it. But do you hear what I'm talking about this morning? And so these soldiers have a touch of it. God wants you to be possessed of it. And you only get possessed of this agape love if you have a relationship with him. If it's born again, if you're possessed by the Holy Spirit, if you're asking to be born again every morning, every night, he's going to give you a gap I love. Well, I wasn't meaning to say this as I close, but, you know, I've been through some experiences in my life. And I remember when I had a divorce, and I feel the Lord compelling me to say this as I close, I could not forgive and I could not love. But what does God call for from us? What does he call? Agape. What is agape? Unconditional love. Agape is what in Romans 5.8 Jesus gave us. Where God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, hurting him, bruised, bruising him apart from him, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When the thief looks on the cross at Christ and he says, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I, I don't deserve to be in your kingdom. Please remember me. And Jesus looks straight back at him. He had, who, he who had just been cursing and abusing him, now at the, now begging at the cross for forgiveness. And Jesus looks at him and says, I promise you today, I promise you today, I promise you right this single moment that when I come again in my kingdom, I will save you. That's agape. 
Agape is a God that can love Lloyd. Pastor in one of the biggest churches in Australia. While his family disintegrates behind him, he sacrifices. This is Lloyd. His family on the altar of the church are getting... And yet, God sees this. He warns me. I don't listen to him. I lose my family. I lose my wife. I can't forgive, even though it's primarily my responsibility. All as humans, we're a wicked, depraved lot. And I'm bruised and I'm battered and I think I'm finished in ministry and I can't preach, I can't visit people, I am a mess. And I remember the day God came down to me. I was out in the front yard of my house and I was looking up at the sky. I never let go of God. The sun was going down, it was dark, and the stars, the first couple of stars were coming out in the sky. And I looked up and I said, Lord, Lord, take me. I don't want to live anymore. And I really felt it. And I experienced the Holy Spirit coming down. It's agape. He put his arms around me. He said, Lloyd, I love you unconditionally. Well, you'll think I'm crying all the time. I'm not really. But I was crying again there because I'm feeling the agape love of Christ. You know what he did to me over the next couple of months? He said, Lloyd, if I can give you agape, if I can love you unconditionally, you go out there and you love your family, your, your ex-wife. You love the people in the church who give you a hard time. You love them unconditionally as I love you unconditionally. It's inspiration. Do you hear what I'm saying? When you've been in darkness like I am and you get loved like God does and it's agape, it's unconditional and it motivated me to get up over the trench and to go back into the war for Christ. And it's because of the agape love that I testify today and stand here before you. And that agape love, that unconditional love is powerful. And as we march to Zion as a church, as we share with this community the love of a Jesus that is all-encompassing, that cannot be measured, they've got to see it in us. Amen? And they're only going to see it in us as we have an experience with Jesus. That, I believe, is what drove the Anzacs. They had just a seed, but it was enough. And today, if you ask him, God will plant the seed in your, your heart. I want it, Lord. I pray for agape, unconditional love. Is there anyone else here today that wants to put their hand up and ask the Lord for the same thing? Father, you can see. Let's bow our heads with your hands held high if it's what you want. Lord, we are marching to Zion. This church is going forward. It is Anzac Day. We praise you, Lord, for the agape you put in the hearts of those soldiers. And we pray that you'll plant the same seed in us and that you'll send the Holy Spirit and you'll grow it and that we'll be powerful and beautiful for you so that people will be attracted to you through us. Lord, see the hands. If you've let them drop, pull them up again. See the hands, Lord. These are the people asking. Bless them with this experience, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.